Welcome to the Governance Freffy podcast, brought to you in conjunction with the Skills and Education Group. I'm delighted to be joined on this podcast by Matt Atkinson, a chartered accountant and independent advisor specialising in the oversight, corporate finance, restructuring and option reviews for clients in and around the public sector. Prior to becoming an independent advisor, Matt was the Director of Provider Market Oversight in the ESFA, an arm's length body to the Department of Education, tasked to set frameworks for and ensure the agency's funding in the FE and skills sector was spent for the purposes intended by Parliament. He was restructuring lead for the Department of Education and a member of the Investment Committee. Whilst working at PwC in 2016, he was seconded to the Skills Funding Agency to head up the newly formed Transaction Unit to support delivery of the area review process in the FE sector. He now works to support institutions, manage their stakeholders, navigate challenging financial environments, release cash for growth, manage costs and raise finance. He's currently working with colleges all over the country and is a member of the Council at the University of Bradford. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, and thank you for having me, Fiona. It's nice to be here. It's great. Thank you so much for agreeing to contribute to the podcast series and to discuss governance oversight of financial management and the solvency of FE institutions. So in my experience from the board work I do, the board's oversight of the finance is probably one of the trickiest, um, not helped by the confusing and complex funding models that we have to work with and consistently low funding rates. And yet, of course, it is obviously a fundamental area where boards should hold the executive to account. So delighted to be hearing from you on this this morning. And I was thinking I do quite a lot of board reviews and I review a lot of college documentation such as terms of reference for boards and committees and it always states in there that board members should have access to external expertise Um, We quite often think of this as sort of more the legal element of things, but I'm keen to hear from you, Matt, sort of what the benefits an external financial advisor can bring to a college. Well, um, I can can speak from my own experience, obviously, of working with quite a few colleges at the moment and indeed actually um, one of the regulators, not one of the regulators in England, the, the colleges I'm engaged with at the moment are going through some kind of material event. Um, one in particular is a significant relocation of provision with all the investment and the challenge and diligence that you need around that. And I'll come back to that word, diligence. Um, the other is um, completing a merger with a, you know, a, a, as a result of a structures and prospects appraisal by the FE Commissioner, these things take much, much longer than just the FE Commissioner saying this is what should happen. And again, you have to go into quite a lot of diligence post that decision to work out how you're going to fit these two businesses together. The third college I'm working with doesn't have what I would call a good financial forecast from which to base their decisions. And again, we'll come back to that forecasting, which I think is absolutely crucial for a college. So what I tend to do is... is um, I think the most value that people take on the face of it is that I will save them quite a lot of money. So I've not been doing this very long, and I think well, my savings for colleges are probably approaching five million in, in the last four months. The the other thing though is is that they do get to say to their board, Matt Atkinson has looked at this for us, and that gives them a little bit of air cover with their governors to say, look, if anybody's going to have 
some decent thoughts around this. Matt Atkinson is one of them, and we've we've engaged with him. Oh, that's really helpful to hear. It was interesting. I was in a college recently um, and they'd appointed a governor with financial expertise who challenged the accounting methodology that they were using. The college had always used it. But as a result of the conversation, you know, they ended up saving several hundred thousand pounds. And I guess, you know, that's probably a small element similar to the work that you do. Yeah, I I think there's something in my, uh, you know, my experience at PDBC and working with distressed clients where you just you can spot things around a deal that should be better Mm. so I sort of feel quite I've always felt quite protective of colleges since I started working with them in 2016 they do get sort of the the thin end of the wedge Um, it's difficult running a college it's difficult going and completing a major transaction doing both of those things at the same time without help Mm-hmm. Um, I was always very worried that co- many colleges have a DIY approach to these things. And actually, that's a false economy. Get some help, get some cover, um, have some, you know, that air cover that you get from having an expert around is really important, in my view. Yeah, um, I would I say that. Yeah, you would say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree, though, because, I mean, probably more than ever I've seen before, executive teams are leaner than they've ever been before because of you know limits on funding and you know they are spread so thinly so I can absolutely see that the benefit um, of having an external financial person on board. So if we could sort of go back to the beginning then and talk sort of about what boards must do regarding oversight of finances. I mean keen to hear from you what you think the priority areas are for financial oversight by governors where should they be focusing their energy most in your view so um some of these are quite deeply held personal views having worked with lots and lots of businesses over the last 25 years so this isn't necessarily that specific to colleges but i'll be specific to colleges but in terms of what what is your operating environment or your legislative environment for a college governor Firstly, you have charity law, probably, because most colleges are exempt charities. Now you're subject to managing public money as a result of reclassification. Again, we'll come on to that. And that is very that comes with some very specific also accounting officer requirements. And all of these resources are available online. Now, what will be coming next year is the College Financial Handbook. Um, and I used to lead the team that produced these documents, and I can absolutely uh attest to their ability and not just their ability but their willingness to consult with the sector so the college will have an opportunity to add into that vital document it's going to be based on the academy's financial handbook Mm. so if you wanted to get a you know a prequel to what's going to be in that document you will see some things in the academy's financial handbook that are very very likely to be in the college financial handbook the academy's financial handbook is one of the most clicked on documents on gov.uk and i, I and i mean that for the right reasons it's a useful day-to-day usable mm-hmm. document when it comes to colleges and we've talked about you've talked about and i've mentioned how it is difficult running a college the financial environment is constrained and the funding is uh, in my view unnecessarily complicated um But at its heart, being a governor um, of a financially sustainable college is to know that it's run well now, but to know that it will exist as a Mm -hmm. vital resource for the economy and future learners for many years to come. So 
I, I find the when we talk about the values of a college, I will find quite often with governors that there are people absolutely committed to the here and now. And I try to get them to think about how the finances mean that they can still be absolutely committed for learners who are potentially not even born yet. So I'm, I'm, my focus is to try to get to people to focus on long-term financial sustainability so you can deliver in the long term. This is not a three-year exercise. So in order to do that, my priority is a plan, a solvent forecast. And to be quite honest with you, I only look at historic accounts if they're the only resource that's available. So they're published months after the year end and a lot can change yeah. since year end mm. and they're subject to various of accounting treatment and discretion. So I say look at a forecast, make sure that it's monthly and make sure it's focused on cash. And the reason that I say that is colleges are not profit-seeking entities. So I know that there's sort of this focus on making a 5% surplus or something like that. What you need to do is have a curriculum that produces enough money to pay the bank, pay for the capex that you need to spend on the buildings to make sure that they're in good condition and any other technology that you might need, and to service LGPS. So long as you've got cash at the end of that exercise, then you are actually financially sustainable, whether you made a surplus or not. So in a particular year, you might depreciate some very significant asset by £20 million and have a deficit. That deficit does not matter if you're able to pay your way. Yeah. So the other thing about cash is, it, you know, you pay your lecturers with cash. You don't pay them with surplus. You pay them with cash. So I try to get everybody to focus on cash because of that non-profit seeking um, element to colleges. And also cash is reality. Um, income, expenses, uh, surplus and deficits are subject to accruals accounting rather than you know straightforward what is happening to the bank account. The final thing I'll say about that, though, is that annual cash forecasts are close to meaningless. Because if you add up 12 months and it's positive at the end, it didn't tell you you ran out of money in month four. Mm. So you need monthly. So I'd summarise it in three words, forecast, monthly and cash. Okay, that, that is really helpful, Matt. Thank you. And of course, yeah, cash is king. And I really like the, you know, your focus on sort of future sustainability. Um, one of the things I ask governing bodies in board reviews is what will be this board's legacy? You know, it's crowning achievement for which future yes. boards yes. will be most grateful. And I think the thing that comes up most often there is financial solvency, long term financial solvency. Mm -hmm. um, and it is absolutely key. So for governors to have this uh, amount of oversight, I think it's interesting if we look back sort of in Dame Mary Nay's review of college finance, uh, financials, which was published, what, about three years ago now, um, yeah. following sort of the Hadlow and the West Kent financial woes. And it spoke very much in there sort of the recommendation and the need for a stronger commitment um, to good governance and stewardship of public funds. Um, better challenge and scrutiny um, and the appropriate resources to provide this quality of governance um, to ensure that its practice is robust. So what do we need in governors? I mean, we often ask for boards to have qualified accountants on their boards for people, you know, obviously that understand accountancy and financial data. 
But again, I worry that perhaps we get too much into the data and actually any governor, whether they're an accountant or not, can always ask those questions of what's the strategic implications for the financial figures they're telling us rather than getting actually into some of the that accounting detail. So I'm just keen to hear your view on A, the need for having qualified financial people on our boards, but also the danger of getting lost in the data. So um, I, I currently call myself a, a finance and strategy advisor. Um, and I think that um, somebody who does accounts but only looks at the numbers is not really adding any value. But I also think that people who only understand the values and don't really get the financial implications of them aren't, aren't fully leveraging their um, ability to support an institution. So I would put myself squarely in the um, bracket of bridging that gap between um, the numbers and the understanding and getting to a strategy that is based on something solid. So back to that college I was talking about, it's very difficult to make decisions if you don't have a proper forecast that allows governors to see what might happen if you implement certain strategies. So I think the first thing I'll say is finance isn't just data because it tells you a lot. And I used to trot this out all the time when I was a civil servant. Data plus analysis equals information. And if you add an expert to that information, you've got insight. For governors, insight is the goal because that helps you make decisions if you have the insight. So no one is going to thank governors for having great values and commitment in an insolvent college that can't pay the staff. I'm working with HE and FE institutions, and I often see values and commitments. I see a lot less about a strategy that is meaningful and it's based on solid information. And I, I oft, oft, often also see that there's a lack of desire to look at what I would call the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. So what is the detail behind this? Why didn't that work? What are we going to do about it? What have we learned from it? So I don't think there's ever a shortage of people focused on the values and and that is great. It's great that these people give their time for free to their local institution for the benefit of the wider society. I would hope that there is a there is a the ability of those people and the ability of the more financial and um, financially focused people to come together to start making really really sustainable strategies. And colleges, to be quite frank, in my last year running um, provider market oversight, we had not had a college come to us with an emergency funding request. And we felt that we had really, really helped. And I would, I would point to, yes, we spent a huge amount of money in the transactions unit. We spent over 400 million pounds supporting college mergers. And we spent more money post that supporting other college mergers. But we were also getting a lot of it back. But I would say that the biggest change we made, and this won't be popular with absolutely everybody on every college exec, but the college financial forecast model helped people focus on the future and see an iceberg that, when it was quite a long way away mm -hmm. and what colleges are brilliant at now is managing in constrained times and it's a bit of a shame that they are but it's fantastic that they are he institutions are not and he institutions are heading into real financial difficulty as well they're less well equipped than colleges so in order to make the decisions of the magnitude that governors should be considering you need to have done a little bit of diligence preferably quite a lot of diligence get to that data, turn that data into information, add an expert, and you've got some insight, and then, and then you can take decisions. So I, don't, I wouldn't say ever that finance is just for the accountants, but I would likewise not say that um, you know, values and strategy are only for the non-accountants. Mm -hmm. 
You know, that that's um that's a fantastic point and you know, I always try to reiterate to governors that, you know, their oversight is oversight of impact, not just oversight of activity. And we do yes. tend to see quite a lot of activity in the reporting that comes to boards. And I think that probably applies to finance as well. But exactly what you said, you know, well, what does this mean for us? You know, what's worked? What hasn't? What's been the impact of the strategies that we've put in place? Um, you know, and we come down to this point again about the importance of having a costed curriculum, which I think we probably yeah. see in, in most colleges nowadays. Um and, and it's obviously really good practice. I mean, I'm keen to hear, you know, from you what what possibly some of the other issues are around, you know, finances. I know a lot of it is due to, you know, the, the funding constraints. But, I mean, even 10 years ago, you know, probably the sector average cash days was about 75. I mean, we must be operating at half that now. I mean, is there any sort of particular areas that you see come up time and time again that lead to financial difficulties um, that you could, you know, share with us so governors can be aware of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can... I could list you out a, a number of questions to ask and KPIs, but it, it, let's just talk about the sort of the the the, um, the non the non numerate side of this. I, I think, firstly, it's a very bad idea just to assume it's all going to come good. So I hear quite a lot, especially in HE now. Actually, I hear quite a lot about demographics. Now, the reality is, is, yes, demographics do have the potential to impact what's happening to your income. They do. But they don't definitely mean it. Um, I'm really interested in seeing colleges where they, 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 will, they will talk to me about demographics. But if they talk to me about demographics, I will say, please tell me what diligence you've done on the job market that you serve. So the reality is a college market is not just the learners. It is the employers who benefit from the training that colleges provide. You're, you're a very, very important recruitment agent in your area. You are supplying the labour. I wanted to get to a situation with colleges where they were so proficient at what they were doing that they would be working closely with other local stakeholders to encourage inward investment in their area because they, I can train, I can train your staff. So when I um, when a big company is thinking about investing in an area, they ask about the price of land, the price of utilities, and the labour supply. Colleges are part of that labour supply chain. So um, don't just assume everything is going to come good. Don't make the short-term moral decision that may impact future learners in a negative way. You need to think about those future learners. It's not just about those ones that are in the building now. I'll come back to, I often see a lack of focus on cash. I think we can have a very lively debate on costed curriculum because I rarely see it done well. Um, it's really hard running colleges um, and it's really, really, uh, and that means it's hard to be a governor because you're holding people to account who are having a difficult, a difficult time. But whenever I see a struggling college, there's almost always one or two nearby who are doing well. So it isn't just about, it isn't, it, it isn't universal. There are plenty of colleges that are actually quite successful. They will say it's difficult yeah. and, and it is, mm. but there's some that are very successful um, and then finally, I would say the sector is, in my view, a little bit insular. And I say that having worked in nearly every sector. Um, you will hear people say, you can't be senior in FE unless you grew up in FE. You know, I used to hear that quite a lot. Um, 
I wasn't always as impressed as people thought I was when they said to me, I've been in FE for 20 odd years. You know, for, for me, fine. That's great. And it shows a level of commitment to the sector, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you've got more insight than anybody else. You just understand it a bit better. It can be learned. Um, colleges are really complicated on the income line, but it isn't brain surgery. You can pick it up. You can, you could get some, we should be really trying to attract some talent into the executive teams that come with different experiences. Um, and I'm working with a, a college at the moment where um, everybody in the exec team has worked at some point in their career outside FE and they work brilliantly together in FE. Yeah, okay, thank you um, for that, Matt. Yeah, some really good points in there. You touched earlier on guidance around finances. I don't know if you wanted to come back to that. I mean, guidance for governors, <laughs> guidance for the executive team. What What's your view on the guidance that's out there? So um, guidance is exactly what it is. I mean, it, it, it is it, having, if you read the guidance and follow it, um, you probably have fulfilled your responsibility. You might not feel like you have, and you might not feel that the guidance really tells you a great deal, especially if you're not um, uh, if you're not familiar with that sort of thing. If I was a governor and I had a forecast in front of me, I would be asking a number of questions, and these would be very, very um, particular and focused. And this is how I would supportively challenge. Um, and, and I'm saying this because you can probably take a view of what I think of guidance. You know, I think if, you could, if you've got 10 to 12 pithy questions, that's much better than reading 20 pages of guidance. So I would say what assumptions underpin the forecast? So, for example, you would be saying something about um, this is the job market, these, this is the way the demographics are moving, um, these, are the, these are the conversations that I've had with employers. If, if your college can't give you answers to those questions, then we've sort of got a bit of a problem. You know, the first problem would be if there isn't a forecast in the first place. But what's the engagement been with employers? Um, and I, I used to, I don't see it as often now, but I used to see um, colleges set their curriculum by teaching stock rather than by the demand for particular subjects and courses. Um if there's a growth strategy, therefore, it can't just be about demographics. What are we saying to schools, to years 10s and 11s, that means that it will come to this college instead of staying in sixth form? And remember, schools really, really want to retain year 11s because they get another £6,000 a year for them. You know, it, it's it's very straightforward um, for a school. It's much easier for a school to retain a learner than it is for them to say, well, actually, I think you'd be better suited to going and doing this. Um, so what outcomes is the college suggesting to those year 10s and 11s that will result from training with them? Um, on any piece of investment, there should be a proper return on investment piece of analysis. What's lecture utilisation? What's building utilisation? What's the building condition? You've mentioned cash days. Cash divided by expenses times 365 is your cash days. You know, it's a it's a very easy calculation. So, you know, know what they are. What is the cash burn? So I've just done some analysis on um, the universities published all the financial data recently, and I've done some cash burn analysis. It didn't take me very long. You can download a piece of you download the Excel and do a calculation. Lots and lots of universities are burning cash at the moment, and they've got it to burn. But how long can you do that for? 
what are the debt obligations and what, crucially, what are the covenants around that debt obligation? We'll come back to that, I suspect, when we talk about the ONS. Um, are we efficient in maximising our applications for and the application of grants? So there's some grants announced last week. What are we doing? Can we access that cash? Let's get after it. Obviously, then you've got the local government pension scheme to think about. Um, some of that is relationship-based, but if you can tell a good story to your pension scheme, they're going to be hopefully will be less hard on you when it comes to contributions. And then the holy grail, what you would call cost of curriculum and what I would call gross margin by course. Assuming that you can cover your CapEx, which is a capital expenditure on buildings and uh, equipment, because you know some of the courses that colleges teach are quite capital intensive. You need to be yeah. able to have VR suites and those sorts of things. Then you've got to service the LGPS deficit contribution payments. Um, if you have got a curriculum plan and a teaching plan and a capex plan and you could absorb the costs of your buildings into your course, then you have gross margin by course. And then what, what I say to colleges about that is, is whilst you're not a retailer, um, most retailers will have some stores that lose money. So if you're Boots, you have the airport stores, which make you a fortune because you have very, very high footfall and you don't have many offers on and quite small uh, square footage. Then you have the stores that are in on the high street where people go in for a sandwich and then they buy some moisturiser as well. And, you know, suddenly they've spent quite a lot, quite a small footprint. Then they'll have some bigger stores in big towns on multiple floors in long leases where they're not making any money. But that doesn't matter because they need a presence in that town. The same goes for a, curric a, a course analysis in a college. You don't have to make money on every course, but you need to know mm. that you can cover a course that's making a loss because there will be a good reason. Hopefully, there's a good reason to run that course. Maybe there's an employer coming in and you're starting the supply. But don't be in a situation where huge numbers of your courses are losing you money because ultimately that's not going to be sustainable and it will drag down the whole institution so gross margin by course you know people saw my background and saw me asking for gross margin by course and they thought I was coming in with a hood and a side you know the reality was very different the reality was that I wanted them to know so that they could take decisions mm -hmm. if they had to take decisions um, but obviously I was viewed with a, a measure of a degree of suspicion initially when I was asking that question. <laughs> a, a great question to ask. I mean, you mentioned their ONS, so we should probably touch on ONS and just how big an impact this is going to have on the sector's finances. Uh, you know, and where board members should be sort of focusing their attention right now, um, you know, summer 2023, financial planning, etc., for the next year just interested to get your views really on on ons matt yeah so I'm, i mean i'm accidentally an expert on this this wasn't you know i didn't go to university in the hope of becoming expert but um at this sort of thing dfe really saw the problem of reclassification um and you know the things that have triggered reclassification are in effect um powers that have never been used and are unlikely to ever be used, um, which confers control to the Secretary of State. And the Secretary of State, um, I don't think, really wants to ever have to use those powers. 
um, but they're in the skills bill and they went through they went through Parliament and that is where we are. Um, the main impact is on uh, debt, so you cannot borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote a very long article with um, Professor Matt Hamnett on this. Um, it's in FE News. You can you can Google it and it walks you through why reclassification occurred, why it occurred in the past and then was rescinded, why it's happened now and the main impacts of it. Um, I've also done a series of uh, seminars with um, Eversheds to all over the country so that colleges could find out, you know, both practically from my perspective and very importantly legally from Eversheds' perspective, the impact of it. But I would characterise it for governors as, as a few simple things. So firstly, you cannot borrow. So if you were, if you were going to be contemplating a major uh, investment, one source of capital is gone. DfE does not want to be the lender to colleges, but it has cast itself in the role of becoming the lender to colleges. The type of debt that you will be able to get from um, DfE uh, and, and ultimately Treasury is not going to include things like overdrafts. It's not going to include things like revolving credit facilities. So just don't have the type of software and expertise that you need to be able to lend that type of facility. So it's going to be loans. They're going to be term loans. And they're probably going to be five to seven year repayment loans. The interest will be very low, um, but it will take much longer to um, access that cash. And also Treasury will look at it and say, are you really being efficient with the cash that you have on balance sheet already if I'm going to lend you this money? So um, I know of a number of situations where, you know, a college has three million on 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 its books and wants to borrow 10 and the answer is well, well we'll lend you seven now i don't think that's a particularly sustainable thing to do but that seems to be what people are hearing and there's also rumors that because the loan facility has not been set up for a while um it's been dealt with on a prioritized basis i.e you know who's closest to running out of cash um which is really not where you want where you want to be either i think the next big thing is going to be uh, that the year end will move to the 31st of March. And I think that's going to be very, very difficult for colleges, but also extremely difficult for DFE. The idea that you can have 230 businesses very with very different characteristics file their accounts in time for you to file your accounts in June, I just don't see that that's going to happen anytime soon. So I, I, I feel that DFE accounts will now be late and potentially qualified for a number of years to come. Then there are a, 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 a few other things that are re- sound quite small but could end up being quite significant. So, for example, you can't make ex gratia payments without Treasury agreeing to it. Now, an ex gratia payment may, for example, include things like writing off an adult learner loan when somebody who didn't finish their somebody didn't finish their qualification for whatever reason. Is that an ex gratia payment? If it's not an ex gratia payment, it is a write off. And any write-off above, I think it's 45,000, um, you'll have to read the article, I'm sorry. But any uh, write-off in aggregate or individually that's over uh, a certain amount needs Treasury approval, certainly needs ESFA, DFE approval. Um, a lot of colleges have been, um, over the last few years, selling some of the family silver to keep yeah. the show on the road. And um, if you were to sell a piece of land or a building, that cannot be applied 
towards um, trading deficits. It has to be spent on capex. Yeah. So a government being asked to contemplate the sale of a building needs to think not just about whether that's a good idea, but are the process going to be used mm-hmm. as intended by the legislation? Um, colleges can't recover their VAT mm-hmm. still. Um, that was an advantage that the academy's got. All in all, I think it's a somewhat worse deal than the academy's got because mm-hmm. you didn't. You, you, have to move, you likely to have to use, move your year end, and you don't get the recovery of VAT. The VAT thing is a very complex matter based on colleges being exempt charities and not being incorporated and things like that. Um, I would also recommend talk to your lawyers. I mean, th- there are most colleges will have a preferred lawyer, and, and that preferred lawyer will hopefully have some knowledge of FE and therefore have done their research around ONS. Um, you know, I have a document from Eversheds. I know that Stone King have been out talking to their colleges. Mills and Reeves will have been doing it, and so will Owen Mitchell. There is expertise out there, and they can come in and they could talk to you about write-offs and use of proceeds and excretion payments. I think that is, you know, colleges, I find, are happy to engage with their lawyers. They're less happy to ask for help on some of the stuff that I help them with, but they're usually happy to talk to a lawyer. And it is those bits of detail that will really help a college not come a cropper because you don't want to be in a situation where you're retrospectively applying to Treasury for approval for something that you did six months ago. That's not ideal. It's not the sort of thing that they like. So just try not to get caught out. Yeah. Well, that's so insightful and really helpful, Matt. Thank you for sharing all that. I mean, we're out of time. Um, It goes so quickly. But, you know, if there was one thing you'd like to see governors do better or do more of in regard to the oversight of their institution's finances, what would it be? Well, I I always talk about the golden thread. So, So running colleges is hard, but they're not profit seeking. You don't have shareholders. The governors are on the hook, not the executive team, except the accounting officer. It's a strange situation in colleges and schools that it's the unpaid part-time volunteers, not the paid leadership teams that are, you know, essentially responsible. So as you're accountable, if you aren't happy, don't delegate. I saw too many dominant principals or CEOs railroading through their personal views and wanting just to rub a stamp from a weak corporation. That isn't your job. Your job is to stand up to the CEO. You're supposed to facilitate them doing good things, but prevent them from doing bad things. Um, It should be mutually respectful and beneficial relationship. Um, Beware of the, I've been in FE for X years types and and beware of the long CVs. You don't want, uh, let me choose my words carefully. Somebody who's been around but moved every three years may not be the person that you need in the organization. You might be better off with someone new. And if your finance team can't give you a compelling presentation of a forecast and take challenge on it, you probably don't have the right people. So it's it's behavioural more than it is um, uh, uh, technical. The golden thread is I've got a curriculum plan, I've got a teaching plan, and I've got a buildings plan, and therefore I know what my gross margin by course is. The reality is, is human being being clever, asking good questions, and building helpful, useful respectful relationships with the leadership teams. If you can get to that, then you're in a really good place. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, you know, so good. I agree with that completely. And of course, you know, that golden question that you referred to earlier, which is what are your assumptions um, that, are, yes. that are feeding this? And I always say to, you know, to executive members, deliver your presentation, give me your proposal and then ask me as a governor what you think, what I think of your assumptions, because that's my job as a governor. Yes. Brilliant. Matt, super. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us and sharing your expertise here on the Governance for FE podcast on the oversight of financial matters. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on the Governance for FE podcast. Visit our website, governanceforfe.co.uk, where you can find all the podcast episodes and a whole lot more information on governance in the FE and skills sector. This podcast was sponsored by the Skills and Education Group. Information on their qualifications, funding opportunities, professional development programmes and initiatives in support of teaching, learning and assessment can be found on their website at skillsandeducationgroup.co.uk.